Welcome to Indoor Voices, presented by Millicare Floor and Textile Care. Join us as we explore the great indoors and talk to experts about how to improve our indoor environments. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Indoor Voices brought to you by Millicare Floor and Textile Care. Today, we have Steve Willis to explore with us indoor air quality. Steve, a good number of folks may know you from your steamatic days or currently as the managing director of Millicare Floor and Textile Care. But in a previous life, indoor air quality was your world. And I'm looking at your certifications, and it's going to take me a while to get through all of them. You're a certified indoor air quality manager, a certified indoor environmental consultant, a licensed mechanical contractor, a facility management professional, and you hold three different master certifications within the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. Ooh, that's a mouthful. IICRC. So how did you get started in this field? Yeah, basically, I first really became involved in indoor air quality back in the early 90s. Um, and I entered that path through air duct cleaning, HVAC system, decontamination, mainly commercial, but I did a lot of residential as, as well. And when I started doing that, I really saw the total IAQ package, which I really didn't recognize before. So, you know, I started recognizing where did the contaminants come from? How did the HVAC system even get contaminated? And started looking at carpets, uh, odors in the building, the lack of filtration in HVAC systems, and just basically poor cleaning methods or no cleaning within a building. So that was really the, the big push that I started looking at everything related indoor air quality. Um, and then the next big shift was in the late 90s, early 2000s, when mold became a huge deal, especially here in Texas. Um, and, you know, I jumped in there and really started learning as much as I could from a microbial standpoint, because it became the dominant requested service, both commercial and residentially, from an IAQ standpoint. So let's jump in. And to start, um, could you give the viewers what a day in the life of an indoor air quality technician might look like? First off, there is no typical day, I'll tell you that, because... Every job's a new job. Every situation is a different situation. Uh, you never know when the phone's going to ring, but you, you could get a call with a complaint or a request for an investigation. Um, that would just be what I would call very typical, and it's not an emergency, and you would schedule it. It's a lower priority, and you know I'll be there next Tuesday, and, and we'll take a look at it. Um, all the way to a situation where a phone call comes in and you have employees complaining to management, you have uh, people filing OSHA complaints against the company, uh, or even worst case, you have people becoming sick, you know, and, and can't stay in the building. So it, I know that's kind of an extreme, but that really is what a day is like. You, you never know what that next job is, is going to be or not going to be. So it's a little bit more on your toes than I thought. And I'll be honest, at times when I've thought of indoor air quality, the thought of the pig pen character from Peanuts with the dust cloud always comes to my mind, uh, you know, as to what we bring indoors. Um, is, there, is there any merit to that? 
Well, there is merit to it. Now, I don't think you're going to see the cloud with someone, you know, walking around. Um, but, but, you know, it stands to reason that you're going to bring stuff with you from one environment to, to another environment. You're going to bring odors, different contaminants, uh, different particles that you may have. Um, you know, just a, an example that most people can relate to. If you have pets at home, then you have, you know, let's just say you have, have a dog or a cat. You're going to have dog or cat hair. You're going to have dog or cat dander in your home. When you come to work, it's natural. You're going to bring some of that with you. If, you, if you're in a cubicle, it's going to be in your cubicle area. Doesn't mean it's a problem. Doesn't mean it's an indoor air quality issue. But that's just kind of a low-level cross-contamination example that everyone could relate to. Uh, so you are bringing and moving stuff around uh, within, you know, within your environment. Uh, the other thing is, you know, look at it in the reverse. You're also going to take stuff back to your home. So if you work in a manufacturing facility or, you know, a metal shaving plant, and I use weird examples because these are jobs I've dealt with. You know, if you have fine shavings of metal that you work with all day in a machine shop, you're going to take fine shavings of metal home with you every day and it's going to be in your car and it's going to go into your home. Um, again, doesn't mean it's a problem. It could be depending on what the what the contaminant is. But yes, I think the uh, I think the pig pen scenario is, is definitely has merit. So indoor air quality is increasingly become more important over the last, you know, <laughs> few years, even more so now. Um, but let's kind of start at the beginning. Could you give us a little bit of history on indoor air quality and why it became so important? So, Brian, let's let's go way back uh, in talking about indoor air quality. Uh, we'll go back two million years, long time ago. So. Two, approximately 2 million years ago is when fire was discovered. So once fire was discovered, there was a source of heat. So they started building fires in caves because that's where they lived at the time. And they would use the fires to keep warm. So imagine sleeping in a cave with a fire burning in the cave and you're breathing soot all night as you're breathing. It's getting into your lungs. But you're also dealing with carbon monoxide and potential carbon monoxide poisoning. So I know that was a way, ways back to go, but you know, there's scientific evidence where they discovered issues with indoor air quality in caves just from burning a fire. So now we'll get more current. We'll, we'll come all the way to the 1800s. And there was a lady named Florence Nightingale, and she's not a nursery rhyme like some people may think. She was actually a real person, and she founded Modern Nursing. Um, and in a, around the 1850s or so, she published a manual. It was the first manual on nursing and, and how to be a nurse. And the first chapter, amazingly, had nothing to do with caring for a patient or, you know, performing a procedure. It had to do with the importance of ventilation and fresh air. So even in the mid-1800s, Florence Nightingale recognized that you know, there's an indoor air quality issue. It's probably even more important in a healthcare environment that we have well-ventilated areas and we have fresh air in the building. So now we'll get more current and we'll come all the way up to the 1970s. 
When the 1970s, and, and I remember the 70s, I was a, a young boy, but we had an energy crisis. I know, Brian, you've never experienced anything like that where you wait in line to buy gas. And I mean, it was, it was a big deal. Uh, in response to that energy crisis, we started building our buildings much tighter, which were much more energy efficient. The problem is they were not able to breathe as well. They were not able to be as, as well ventilated. Uh, so this was a great concept for thermal comfort, but it was terrible for fresh air exchanges. And this is really when the issues with the term sick building syndrome, it, it kind of started and it started drawing national attention. Uh, and this is really, you know, when IAQ concerns really became under the spotlight and, and still are today. Steve, thanks for that full answer. So knowing this history, from your perspective, what should facility professionals be aware of from an indoor air quality standpoint? The first thing I would say is, is take all complaints serious. You know, don't, don't just brush them off. I mean, make sure you listen to any complaints and you really look at it. Uh, another thing is know when to call for help. Some things you may not be able to take care of on your own. You don't want to assume that liability. Um, it may be nothing, or it could be something uh, very major. Handle it differently by the uh, classification of the building you're in. If you're in a healthcare environment, you need to take indoor air quality complaints you know, more serious. Not that the complaint may be more serious, but in healthcare, that's, that's a higher, you know, higher cause for concern. I guess that's that's the biggest thing is know when to call for help. Um, you know, make sure you take the complaints serious. Look into it. If you're going to handle it yourself, make sure it is within your scope of work. I mean, to me, those are the biggies. The other things are easy because, you know, when you call a professional in, you put a team together, you discuss options, you can always come up with a plan. It's what happens right there in the beginning that determines its path. Extremely practical answer. I, I, I appreciate that. So, so when is the facility most vulnerable then to having its indoor air quality negatively affected? You know, I would say after any abnormal event or impact to the building, if you have a water damage, um, and I'm not talking about a flood where you have four feet of water, of course, that's an impact to the building. Minor plumbing issues over time can cause major problems. Uh, so, you know, some type of uh, event with construction or repairs within the building. Have you remodeled? You know, did you change out carpeting? Did you change out tile? Have you changed out new ceiling tiles? I mean, when you start modifying a building structure, you're, you're gonna find stuff that's been there since the building was built potentially that you're bringing into the to the workable environment that might've been trapped somewhere. Uh, lack of general cleaning and maintenance. This is a big one. I can't tell you how many, per, how many problems could be prevented just by properly maintaining stuff and making sure the facility is cleaned. Um, I, I mentioned carpeting or tile earlier. Really it's any new furnishings, any new materials. You know, you bring in new furniture, you bring in new desks. I mean, all of these things could have an impact on your indoor air quality. Uh, construction defects, leaking windows, roof leaks, uh, improperly, improperly designed HVAC systems. 
could be a brand new building. It could have more problems than a building that's 50 years old just because of different construction methods that may not have been appropriate or, or they were not properly done. I mean, yeah, there's probably a hundred more, Brian, but those, those are kind of the ones that come to mind. Those are good, right? So facility managers can think about, hey, I've had my building modified. Um, and this leads me into my next question. Okay, so they've had my building modified. That's when I'm vulnerable. What prompts a call to an indoor air quality specialist? You know, I would say very few calls come in just because they just want to make sure everything's good. Um, most all calls, it, typically it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be based on a complaint by someone having an adverse reaction within the building. In my experience, most indoor air quality complaints were somehow related to an odor because that was the source. You know, something was causing an odor and that's what people started noticing first. Um, you know, it's also important to point out that, that issues could not have an odor. So, so I don't want anyone to hear this and say, oh, I don't have an odor. Those people, they don't really have a valid complaint. No, there's, there's deadly gases with no odor. So uh, don't always tie it to an odor. I'm just saying that in my experience, most complaints have originated with some type of odor that um, heightened uh, everyone's senses. So Steve, what are some unique projects you've worked on in the past? Oh, let's see. I've got some favorites. So, um, you know, I once uh, went out because of odor and uh, to do just an initial inspection to see, you know, maybe what what if I could easily find what was going on. And uh, the employees had been complaining of an odor, watery eyes, scratchy throat, headache, you know, similar symptoms to cold, flu. Um and as soon as I walked into this office, and it was an office suite, as soon as I walked in, it hit me. I could smell it. I could feel the, a slight burning in my eyes. And I'm like, okay, this is, you know, no one's making this up. There, there's something going on. So we, we did a very thorough visual inspection. And everything looked really good. I mean, the building was clean. There was no signs of any water intrusion. Um, I mean, it, it was it was amazingly clean to be having such a, a problem. Um, and then since they had an adjoining business, you know, I just asked what type of business is next door? Um, because it's an important question. I mean, you know, are they making chemicals next door? I mean, what's next door? And uh, the manager said, oh, that that space has been empty for over a year. And I'm like. Okay, interesting. So, I, you know, the landlord was was on site. The manager called the landlord, arranged for them to come down while we were there and open up that suite. And as soon as he opened it up and we all walked in, it was one of the most extensive microbial growth environments I, I'd ever seen. I mean, it was floor to ceiling. Uh, even the floor was covered with mold growth. To walk on it, you were just walking on mold. You were not walking on carpeting. Um, the humidity was, was unbelievable in there. There'd been no air conditioning in the building for almost a year. Uh, and this was all caused by a minor leak in a bathroom that had been leaking for since the other tenants, it might've been le leaking, 
um, a year before the other tenants moved out and they just ignored it. There's, there's no way to know, but it, it was definitely over a year of a minor plumbing leak in a bathroom. Uh, and it got to the point where, where it was impacting the office next door just from the off-gassing uh, of the microbial growth. Um, so, you know, actually those, those people ended up moving out of that suite and relocating because the, the repairs next door were so extensive, it really was going to impact and, and take their walls out. So that, that was a big one that's just, you know, from, from a minor, minor problem. Uh, so the most funny one would be an example where we went out to do uh, an inspection again, based on odor. Um, it was a owner occupied building, two story building. So no other tenants in it other than this company. And uh, the odor was definitely bad, very pungent. We really couldn't find much. So the next step would have been to do some, some testing to see if we could start narrowing it down. And, uh, in the building, they, they did have a bank of filing cabinets, you know, 20 filing cabinets side by side, pushed up against the wall with, with maybe a half an inch, maybe three quarters of an inch at the most behind them. Um, in this week's transition of them trying to make a decision after receiving the proposal, they were getting new filing cabinets. It was something that had been scheduled. So the company came in to remove the old ones. And when they started removing them, they found a ham sandwich that had slid down behind the filing cabinets. There was the source. That was the indoor air quality problem. Uh, so it was easily rectified. You know, the ham sandwich was removed and taken outside and thrown in the trash. And other than some basic ventilation of the building to just get some fresh air in and flush the building, um, it was pretty much resolved. Just, you know, as simple as a ham sandwich. Those are definitely unique. And weaved throughout all of those is this idea of odors. Um, so I want to bring in another concept here of VOCs. I see low VOCs, a good bit on hard surface and soft surface cleaners. And you'd mentioned cleaning before. Um, so what's the cleaning manufacturer trying to communicate when they talk about low VOCs? What are VOCs? You could do a whole series just on VOCs. So I'm just going to barely you know, touch on the subject. So, so a VOC, first off, is, is a volatile organic compound. And, and it's basically an, an off-gassing of an organic material. You know, in one of the examples about the suite next door, I said that, you know, the mold growth was so bad, it was off-gassing into the suite next door, that that, that would be considered an MVOC. It has its own name. It's a, a microbial volatile organic compound. But think of it as an odor. Uh, these are odors that evacu evaporate at room temperature. So when you open a bottle of something and you smell it immediately, it's an off-gassing of that. Um, things that we could relate to, hand sanitizer. When you put on hand sanitizer, you smell it for a little bit. Well, those, those are VOCs evaporating or, or you know, VOCs from products in the hand sanitizer gasoline, when you fill up your car, it's a distinct smell. You don't even have to see it. If you get something on your hand, you go, oh, that's gasoline, because you know from the VOCs. Um, bleach, when you open a jug of bleach, you don't have to heat it up for it to smell. You immediately know it's bleach. And the big one uh, that I like to use a lot of times, because we don't think of it as a negative, but new car smell. 
Yeah, there is no new car smell. It's the VOCs, you know, off-gassing byproducts of adhesives and, and different things off of that new car. That's why that new car smell goes away over time. Um, so, yeah, I know I just touched the tip of the iceberg, but think of a VOC really as an off-gassing or an odor coming from a product, and that product can be at room temperature. So, you know, perfumes could have a VOC. I mean, so, and just one important thing, because we talked earlier about odor, there are odorless VOCs. So remember, gases can be odorless as well. That's actually some good things to take into consideration when bringing chemicals into your facility. And sometimes facility professionals have to bring in harsher chemicals. Maybe the VOCs are not very good to breathe in. Um, and it's, an, it's unavoidable for certain projects. What, what can they do? From a facility manage, manager standpoint, um, you know, I said it earlier because it, it fits so many scenarios is facilities may need to make sure they're, they're using qualified contractors. You know, lowest bid is not always the best job. Lowest bid is not always the best chemical. Um, depending on the products that are needing to be used, you know, look at scheduling the work outside of normal business hours. You know, don't bring a high VOC product in, you know, at, at 10.30 a.m., when you're at max occupancy within the building, you're gonna get complaints. Doesn't mean it's a bad issue, doesn't mean it's an indoor air quality issue that's gonna harm someone, but you're going to get complaints. Um, you know, if a facility manager, if they know of tenants or employees that are sensitive to odor, consider relocating them for a period of time. You know, don't agitate their sensitivity by, by bringing a high VOC product in. Um, and then maybe the last one is ask questions. Make sure you understand what's being used. You know, if they say, hey, we're bringing in this new adhesive developed for NASA that they're taking to Mars, it would be worth asking, well, what is it? You know, what is it? Is it high VOC? Is it low VOC? What, you know, what precautions do we need to take? Um, you know, and, and so forth. Your answers are just very easily grasped and practical, right? So I also think about the actual technician using the product, Product, right? What should the technician using these products also do? Most importantly, probably, well, there's several, so they're not necessarily in order, but follow the label. You know, follow the label, you know, mix accordingly. I'll tell you now, more is not always better. You know, don't mix two chemicals together to skip a step. And, and I'm saying this because this is done quite often. Um, use proper PPE. And, and sometimes PPE, people think, is a bad word. And, and for some that may not know, that's personal protective equipment. You know, a dust mask is a form of PPE. Gloves, eye protection, those are all PPE. Um, it's not a bad word. It's a precautionary word. There's certain things that you should use proper PPE uh, to do. Um, ventilate the area. So when you're working with a product with, with VOCs, low or high, if you could ventilate the area, that, that would be great. You know, you, you wouldn't want to go into a closet and put varnish on the floor with the door closed. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. 
Um, control use and, and the storage. This is this is a big one. This is something that over my career, not just in indoor air quality, this is something I, I've witnessed a lot. Uh, if you need a spray bottle of a certain product, don't bring a five-gallon bucket into the building. It's not needed. Leave that in your van or leave that back at your warehouse. Just bring into the building what's needed uh, for certain chemicals. Uh, and then the last thing I would say, communicate. Maybe that's the most important one. If you're going to spray something or apply something with an odor that some people could find uncomfortable, communicate that ahead of time. You know, don't be spraying around someone's feet with a high VOC product and you never said a word to them, you know, and they're like gasping for air. Um, and that's an extreme case because I, I don't I would hope no one would do that anyway. But communicate, let people know, hey, this is going to have an odor that some people find unpleasant. It'll go away in about 30 minutes. So, you know, is there another area you may want to work in for 30 minutes or you know, should we spray this during lunch or do we come back at night, which to me would be the preferable time to do it. But communicate your intentions and what you're going to do. Yeah, I love the transparency there, right? From a technician standpoint, supervisory standpoint, and the, the building occupants that may be around you. So I'm going to pull you into the flooring world just a little bit. Um, can there be a significant connection between carpet, kind of my world, carpet and indoor air quality? A huge connection, probably more than some people realize. Um, you know, think, think of your carpet as a filter because there's, there's air passing through that carpet. You know, it may not be going through the concrete under the carpet, but it's going into the carpet and into the carpet fibers. Um, everything in the air will eventually do what? Because of gravity, settle to the floor. So, you know, when... When you brush a bunch of stuff off your desk and you're not using a damp cloth, it goes airborne and then it's going to settle into the carpeting. Uh, so we've got all this, you know, particulate that has settled on carpeting. And now what do we do? We start walking across it. So now we're making it become airborne uh, again. Uh, you know, foot traffic is bringing in all types of contaminants. I mean, we're bringing stuff in from... Uh, the parking lots, we're bringing stuff from other parts of the building. If there's a warehouse in your building, when you go to the warehouse and come back in, you're bringing contaminants from the warehouse uh, onto the carpeting. Uh, outside of bathrooms, outside of cafeterias, you know, or break rooms, all of those things, you know, what's, in a, what's on the floor in a break room on the tile is typically different than what would be out in a general office area on the carpet. But foot traffic spreads that throughout the building. So once, you know, we mentioned that once walking on this, it becomes airborne. Um, so then, you know, you've got airborne particulates when, when they get to a certain level, if your returns are in the ceiling, if they're on the wall, they don't have to be very high. If your return air to your HVAC system is mounted low on the wall, uh, now you're pulling stuff into your HVAC system to potentially redistribute it or spread it more throughout the building if you don't have good filtration. So uh, carpet's a huge one. And, and, and I'll tell you, Brian, what's amazing is so much of the carpeting concerns could be eliminating with vacuum, you know, thorough vacuuming with a very good high quality vacuum. 
wow, once again, just very, very practical, right? And uh, thinking about the particulates in the air, thinking about your HVAC system. And now we're, we've talked about VOCs and we've talked about particulates. And sometimes people get very specific as to, hey, I want, I want to test the indoor air quality. So Steve, at the times that you've had to employ, employ any kind of indoor air quality testing, what does that look like? Again, we, you could do a whole show on testing and maybe that would be a good topic because there it, it's an interesting field. Um, as I said before, I, I, I use my eyes and nose first. I probably take a little more conservative approach. Um, now, you know, if employees are dying in a building because of indoor air quality, you're not going to go in, of course, and want to do a visual inspection and smell stuff. But, you know, your general, you know, IAQ inspections, the first time you, you go out, you can tell a lot just by looking and, and smelling. But, you know, testing methods, so you could test for different gases. Um, you could test for airborne particulate. You know, what is the particulate load or particulate count in the air? Um, you could do tape lift samples. If you've got something settled on a horizontal surface, you could you could take a tape lift and then put it on a slide and send it to the lab, and they would look at it under a microscope. Um, I mean, there's even specific testing protocols for HVAC system contamination to see if they need to be cleaned or not cleaned. You know, it, it's dialed into a scientific uh, method. And but once again, I just keep going back that visual inspection. Uh, is really important. An interview about the building and its history. Knowing what's happened in that building will help you know what type of testing to turn to first. It would not be practical to do every type of testing that's available and known to man when you walk into a building. It would be like going to a doctor and saying, I want you to test me for everything. It's just not a practical approach. Um, but, you know, that, that building history is so important. Has there ever been a past inspection? If so, let's get that report. You know, it might have been 10 years ago, but guess what? It might help lead you. Uh, you know, what were the findings on that other uh, inspection? Remodeling history. How many times has the building been remodeled? Um, I, I mentioned earlier about building events. Has there ever been a water damage? Maybe the water damage was not last month. It might have been nine years ago. But that may be part of the root cause for the problem now. I call it a roadmap. I think you need to start making uh, a building roadmap. And so you take that building and you start, oh, they did remodeling here and they had an issue 10 years ago. And here's the report. They just did remodeling 60 days ago and they got a very similar issue. That would help guide you to what may be going on. So, Steve, when you get an IAQ report, what can you expect to be on that report? Yeah, a lot of different information, Brian. I, I would say, and these are not in any particular order, but, um, you know, what were the visual observations? So what did the inspector see or what did they smell or what did they notice while they were there? Uh, what were the outdoor conditions? This, this is an important part of that roadmap I talked about earlier. You know, readings from outside, weather, temperature, humidity, even wind speed and direction is important sometimes because the, the problem causing your indoor air quality concern 
could be coming from a manufacturing facility in the area, but it only occurs at certain times. So starting to document, is it the wind bringing that from another building? Um, outdoor events, you know, major construction, proximity to major highways. Uh, it, it's almost never ending. If, if you're out west and, you know, where they have a lot of seasonal wildfires, is it during wildfire season? That may be your issue. The issue may not be in the building. It may be coming into the building from, from the outside. Um, you should expect on this report to see readings outside of the target area. So what I'm calling the target area is the actual area of concern. If it's just part of a building, here's where the complaints are coming from. Well, let's go to the other end of the building and also take some sampling to see, because maybe the problem's over there as well, but those people are not sensitive to whatever that is. And the results of each sample showing its location. So this is important. You shouldn't just get a list of samples and the results. It, you should, there should be a guide to where that sample was taken from. So you can start potentially to see, maybe the more you get away from the warehouse, the better your indoor air quality is. So then you could go back and say, okay, the problem may be coming in from the warehouse. Um, results compared to a normal range. So when you go outside of the target area, if it looks really good from testing, but the target area, the complaint area, you know, is high. Well, let's compare those two. You know, is it 1% higher or is it 70% higher with some type of contaminant? Um, another would be look at the results compared to outdoors. Because if you have a problem in a building and you take a sample outside and it's exactly or real close to the same levels, then you know it's not necessarily a building issue. It's an environment issue that you've got to look at. Uh, the last two things really is conclusions and recommendations. What did the inspector conclude? What, what, you know, what, how do they wrap up their findings? Because they're, they should be giving you a path of next steps, not just results. And then what are the recommendations? I mean, you know, normally, normally most indoor air quality inspectors are not short on recommendations. They're going to give you a long list of recommendations that uh, they would recommend you do for the bill. I like how practical those inspections are. They'll give you some really good data by which to make decisions. Um, but if we pull it back just a little bit, what kinds of maybe preventative practical measures can be put in place before you, you know, they go out and get the testing. Um, so what practical things can they do about their indoor air quality? And this is the facility professional. So I would say these are the things they could do before they even have an indoor air quality issue. Uh, and uh, so I don't know how many times I've talked about keeping the building clean, but it's, it's gotta be the top three on the list. Keep your building clean. Um, Good filtration for the HVAC system. Good filtration will remove contaminants that may be airborne and, and, and help eliminate any future IAQ issues. Um, how much fresh air are you bringing into the building? I mean, that fresh air mixture is, is important. Uh, and there's actually a standard, and it's based on the number of people and square footage. You know, it, it's, it's a formula. 
but it will tell you how much fresh air you should be bringing into the building based on its occupancy level and, it, it, and its square footage. Um, you know, use HEPA vacuums. I mentioned vacuuming earlier. If you vacuum with a vacuum cleaner you purchased on Amazon that was $29, you're probably doing more harm than good to your indoor air quality because all you're doing is taking everything on the floor and blowing it all over the building. Um, purchase low VOC items when possible. We talked about VOCs. It's not always possible, but when you have a choice, and it may cost you a couple of dollars more, but it may be worth it in the long run. Um, you know, address issues quickly. If you have a plumbing leak, address it. Uh, if you have a, a window or a door, you know, the rubber gaskets, the seals are bad and there's there's moisture or condensation gathering in the building, address it. Um, you know, solid preventative maintenance all the way around. Take care of things when they're small before they get big. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull you in again for your expertise kind of on some current goings on, right? So as an indoor air quality expert, knowing that many buildings have been closed and now are beginning to increase the capacity of occupants in their building, should indoor air quality be on the radar and, and why? It absolutely should be a concern. Um, this is a much greater concern if the building has been empty with no maintenance and, and um, their HVAC systems have been turned off to save money. You know, if, if the building has been partially occupied and facilities, you know, engineering and those types of people have been there, then it's, you know, it's probably not as huge of a potential problem. Uh, but if no one has been doing anything, then yes, it, it, it's a problem. Uh, building maintenance crews, they should do a full walkthrough of the building. I mean, looking at everything. And we're not talking about walking around drinking coffee one morning and talking to each other and saying we did a walk around. You know, we're talking about going around with a flashlight and, and, and checking things. Um, you know, check the plumbing, you know, go into the bathrooms and look up under the counters and just make sure that that there's no plumbing issues. HVAC systems and filters, get those filters changed if, if there's been no preventative maintenance going on. Um, exhaust fans, overlooked a lot of times. Exhaust fans serve a purpose. They're in bathrooms and cooking areas to exhaust the fumes and humidity out of the building so they don't back up and go into the building. Make sure they're working and they're clean. Uh, we touched on door and window seals earlier. Signs of water stains, not only on floors, but on ceiling tiles. If you've got a brown circle on your ceiling tile, there's not many guesses you need to know what that is. You've had some water come in from plumbing, from a sprinkler system, from a roof leak, you know, whatever it, it, it may be, uh, look into that. Uh, again, use your eyes and nose when you're, you know, when they're doing this uh, walkthrough. Um, I'd also recommend a full cleaning of the building to help ensure contaminants and odors are addressed. Uh, the worst time to do a full cleaning of the building is after you brought all the employees back. It's so much easier to do it before you bring the employees uh, back. Steve, thanks so much for your practical and full answers today. Um, and thank you so much for exploring the great indoors with us. All right. Thanks for asking, Brian. I've enjoyed it. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and subscribe. This podcast is an audio-only version of the Indoor Voices interview series presented by Millicare Floor and Textile Care. You can watch the video of this interview and find other episodes at millicare.com slash indoor voices.